is Islam compatible with this question, followed by phrases like democracy, religious freedom, liberalism, etc., is one of the most common questions I get as somebody who did a PhD studying political Islam. And this question has only gotten more common as I've come to work at a Christian university. It's a good question, although often the question itself raises a set of other questions. What do we mean by Islam, religious freedom, democracy, etc.? And what assumptions are we making about all of those things that underlie the question itself? In today's podcast, I will briefly and in a fairly introductory way delve into these questions of compatibility. My hope is not necessarily to definitively answer the question, but rather to give us a way of thinking about these questions, the possible areas of compatibility, the possible challenges that arise, and in a sense, to help us think through the relationship between Islam and other civilizations, the West in particular, as we move into the 21st century. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome again to another educational episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. Nolte, professor of government at the Robertson School of Government at Regent University. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either the Robertson School or Regent University. Please remember you can rate and subscribe to us on iTunes or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast provider, be it Stitcher, Google Podcast whatever other podcast provider you use. Our main feed is on anchor.fm. And please do share our podcast with your friends, your family, or anybody else you know who might be interested in content like this amidst the uh, times of quarantine. I do apologize for the fact that the podcast is being released a little bit later this week. We tried, uh, or I should say, I tried an experiment with recording it using a different format. And uh, I would say that did not work particularly well. So... We're back to our original format for probably one or two more podcasts in terms of of my recording format. My hope is that in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be able to substantially increase the audio quality from kind of average to really good, and we will continue to try to use other things like that and make other tweaks to make the podcast better still. We are excited about some possible future guests and some possible opportunities for new topics that are going to be coming out. Stay tuned for that. And also just wanted to let everybody know that the Robertson School of Government is going to be doing a series of webinars the first week in May, focusing on issues of campaigns and grassroots activism amidst the coronavirus pandemic. So stay tuned to the podcast and to all of the various different Robertson School of Government social media platforms for that. Speaking of platforms, you can find this podcast on Facebook at Blind Politics, Instagram at Blind Politics, and Twitter at Blind P-O-L Nolte. So, back to the question with which we began this podcast. And that question is, is Islam compatible with religious freedom, democracy, women's rights, liberalism, rule of law? Take your pick. I think to answer this question, we first have to address some questions about what we mean by Islam. Because all too often, our perception of Islam is actually filtered through some a priori assumptions that Westerners tend to have about religions in general, and Islam in particular. 
The first of those assumptions is an assumption that really all religion is the same under the skin. And that is an assumption that you sometimes get from people that have more of an academic background, academic training in things like religious studies, sometimes people from from certain types of Christian backgrounds, I would say more modernist or, or mainline Christian Protestant denominations tend to make these assumptions. And then a lot of people that are not religious themselves. So this assumption is based on the idea that all of the metaphysical aspects of religion are non-essential, that what is really essential to all religion is an underlying core of morality that is shared across various different religious systems. One way of simply boiling down this idea that was expressed again by sort of modernist liberal Protestants from Germany was the idea that all religion really spoke to the universal fatherhood, or today in a more politically correct age, we would say parenthood of God, and the universal brotherhood, or again today uh, we would probably say something like siblinghood of man, right? Universal fatherhood of God, universal brotherhood of man. All of the metaphysical aspects of religion about the different, the, the character of God, the doctrine of God, all those things are non-essential from this perspective. So you can see why, in this perspective, the assumption would be that all religions are really the same under the skin because they're preaching the same morality, but it was expressed in different terms by the various different societies in which uh, these religions emerged. And the project that is underlying this is an idea of sort of bringing all religion together around these ideas and allowing this sort of you know, metaphysical notions of you know, God's doctrine and character and, and sort of the theology or belief to fade away. The other set of assumptions is that all religions are basically and mutually incompatible in all ways. And this assumption tends to be held most strongly by those who are believers in the various different religious traditions. This is an area where sort of more conservative Protestants and, and Roman Catholics and other Christians and more conservative or traditionalist Muslims would agree, right, that there is a, a strong incompatibility between these various different religions. And this assumption takes very seriously the metaphysical claims and seeks to, I would say, minimize the commonalities between various different religions, commonalities in morality and doctrine and so forth. Often, but not always, this perspective is focused on proselytizing. In other words, trying to convert people from one religion to another. And if you're trying to proselytize, of course, you would want to heighten the differences, right? You want to say, our religion is better than this other religion because X, right? And you want to minimize any sort of positives or similarities between the religions in order to demonstrate why your religion is, is better and people should convert to it. Because most of the time, people try to proselytize based on sort of rational argument. This is why this religion is better than that religion. So who's right? I would say that there is some truth in both perspectives. I would lean a little bit more toward the second perspective, because I, I think the first perspective is fatally flawed in saying that the metaphysical aspects, the, the aspects of the character and nature of God and of the divine don't matter, because for religious people, that is the purpose of religion, right? Religion is not for, as experienced by religious people, primarily about having a code of morality that you can, so that you can live a, a good and prosperous life that's going to be justified by sort of external metaphysical aspects. In fact, it is about experiencing the divine in a direct, powerful, and meaningful way. If that's the purpose of religion, then your beliefs about the divine, in fact, matter a great deal. Because it is through those beliefs that you're going to understand that you can experience the presence of the divine, right? So let's take Christianity, for example. One of the big debates that happened in early 20th century Christianity 
is there were some people said, we need to move Christianity away from these sort of metaphysical trappings of the incarnation, the resurrection, the miracles, the virgin birth. You know, all of these things aren't really what's important about Christianity. Well, if you actually look at religion as not necessarily a vehicle for morality, but as the purpose of religion is to experience the presence of the divine, then the incarnation, the resurrection, the miracles, the, the sacraments, the, you know, the, the divine inspiration of scripture, all of these things are the point of Christianity. You can't take them away and have anything left that is meaningfully Christian because it is, in fact, having a relationship with the divine, with the, the Trinity through the person of Christ, that is the purpose of Christianity. The morality, all of the good things that people want, comes from the metaphysics. And you can't have the morality without the metaphysics. Right, so if that is the case, then we should expect that there are going to be serious and substantive differences between the religions because their metaphysics is different. And in fact, we find that that is the case. There are differences in morality. There are differences of approach to ethics and politics and all of those things. And a lot of the similarity comes from sort of hand-waving away the metaphysics and really assuming and imposing a certain type of belief, a certain type of enlightened, progressive, cosmopolitan, liberal, Protestant, Christian ethic onto all other religions, then looking for aspects within those religions that match that approach and that ethic and saying, see, this, this just proves our point that our beliefs are universal. On, on the left, they've developed a term for this that in this case I think is quite appropriate, and that is cultural imperialism. Because at a certain level, the project of saying that all religions are the same is a culturally imperialist project because you're saying all religions essentially look like my religion. All, all religions essentially look like, you know, modern American Episcopalianism or United Methodism or the PCUSA or what have you, where all the religious differences and trappings have been stripped away, and it all just comes down to, you know, benevolent social service to our fellow man, right? That is an imperialist project. You are trying to strip away the metaphysics of other people's religions, whether you recognize it or not, and pretend that they don't matter. And so you're imposing your values on other people which I sort of thought that people in that sphere were not as interested in doing, but you know, I think everybody at a certain point does impose their values on other people. So that's one aspect. That being said, and that's a, a pretty strong caveat, I do think that there are some similarities between religions. Now, from a Christian perspective, I'd be inclined to say that that's a result of general revelation or common grace or natural law. You know, in, in, in there's Christian passage, passages in, in the Bible that talks about you know, how God has written his law even on the hearts of the barbarians. Barbarian in Greek, by the way, means, means foreigners, those sort of outside of our culture or our religion. So it's not necessarily a, well, it is, it is a pejorative, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It's also descriptive. Um, and so, you know, from a, from a Christian perspective, I think that makes sense. From an Islamic perspective, that makes sense. Islam has a, a similar doctrine there. Obviously, there's different contours to it. I won't necessarily get into that as much. But there are some common, seemingly universal moral beliefs. That does not mean that the metaphysics do not matter. It does mean that there may be ways in which we can work together with people from other religions to at least defend those common and universal values, while at the same time recognizing that we are going to be competitors with them in terms of the metaphysics. In other words, we don't have to have all one or the other. We don't have to say, because we are trying to convert one another, because we are proselytizing religions, and Islam and Christianity both are, that we, we then can't have anything in common. We can't work together on anything. 
We also don't have to say that because we're working together and upholding similar moral values that we have to completely discard our metaphysics. In other words, I think it's possible to walk and chew gum at the same time on this issue. I think that there are similarities. There are differences. The differences matter. They're important. We can't hand wave them away. But there may be some ways in which we can work together on the similarities. So with that as prologue, let's talk about Islam. Is Islam compatible with all of these things that we started out talking about? I think one of the fundamental differences that is important in understanding Islam, particularly if you're looking at it from a Christian perspective, is that the core of the metaphysics in Islam is different. So when we're talking about religious metaphysics, we're talking about how does the divine reveal itself to humanity? And in both Islam and Christianity, we have to talk about the divine in personal terms. So how does God reveal himself to humanity? From a Christian perspective, that ultimate revelation comes in the person of Christ, who is incarnate, fully God and fully man, is lives, dies, is crucified, rises again, and in so doing, opens up the possibility of a relationship with him in which Christians participate in the divine relationship with the Trinity. So God is inherently relational, is Trinitarian. And we participate in that relationship through Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is the sort of Christian metaphysics. It's going to look a little bit different in terms of the various different Christian denominations, but that's the general outline. Okay, so at the heart of Christianity is theology. Now, if we break down theology into the Greek, which I'm about to butcher some Greek, so uh, that's always fun. The two words are theos, logos. Theos for God and logos for kind of one way of translating is knowledge or logic. Another way of translating it is word. In fact, logos is the term that is used in John 1 in Greek for the word of God. Now, there's an ancient Hebrew and Aramaic roots to that too. I don't want to get too much into the theology. We'll save that for the theology podcast. But the term theology itself, I think, has explicitly Christian contours because it implies that there is a word of God that is revealed that can be studied. Christianity then has theology at its heart, but also anthropology. Anthropologos, anthropos means human and logos as, as previously described. So that also, a Christian anthropology, in a sense is, is also very much natural to Christianity because Christianity is centered around the God-man, the person of Christ. So theology and anthropology are at the core of Christianity, and those two things come together in Christology or the, the study of Christ, the, the doctrine of who Christ is. So at the core of Christianity is theology, is doctrine, and it's very focused on the nature of the person of Christ. In Islam, God's full revelation comes not through the prophet, right? God is not fully revealed in Muhammad. God is not incarnate in Muhammad. Islam rejects all of those Christian notions. Rather, God's full revelation is the Quran. Okay, so the Quran is equivalent to Christ in Islam. It is not equivalent to the Bible. The Bible partakes in that revelation of Christ. In other words, the Bible is, is God's word written. It is breathed by God, is inspired by God. But it is in and of itself not the full revelation. It is a part of that. There's, there's again, a lot of theology here that I won't necessarily get into, but there is a connection to the Bible, between the Bible and Christ. And for Christians, the Bible, in a sense, is related to Christ and sort of the, the, the fullness of it and the truth of it is only revealed in Christ. So the, the Christian view of the Bible is a little bit distinct because it is centered on Christ. Now, the Quran is at a higher level than the Bible. The, the Quran is, again, the equivalent of Christ. It's the fullness of God's revelation to man. 
Now, the Quran itself is not part of God because God is not Trinitarian in Islam. God is not relational in quite the same way. Rather, it is the law of God revealed to his people so that if they follow it in living in perfect submission to that law and to that revelation, they can then, by their own efforts, achieve a, a relationship with, with God in which God will sort of condescend to bring them to paradise. All right, that is a very different metaphysics, a very different structure. It's also kind of a different structure than what you would see in, in Judaism. The Torah is very important in Judaism. Following the law is very important in Judaism. But there is a covenantal relational aspect to Jewish revelation that's not quite there in Islam. In Judaism, Abraham and his descendants have certain rights before God and responsibilities before God. They have the right to question God. They have the responsibility to argue and debate the meaning of the Torah. So I would say Judaism is, is kind of halfway between Islam and Christianity in terms of its conception of God's revelation. So it's more legal focused than Christianity. There's law in all three religions, but the law is more important in Judaism than it is in Christianity, particularly in rabbinic Judaism, the, the modern expression of that. But the covenant, the relationship in Judaism is more important than in Christianity. Okay, so there are some differences there, and those differences are important because as I sometimes joke with my Islamic political thought students at the beginning of the class, some people say that Islam is a religion of peace. Some say that Islam is a religion of violence. I say that if it is anything, Islam is a religion of law and of lawyers. So Christianity is a religion of theology and theologians, and Islam is a religion of law and of lawyers. Most of what we would consider theology in Christianity is legal interpretation in Islam, where there are divides, where there are conflicts, between different schools of thought, they are often legal and ju jurisprudential conflicts and, and divides. So, what does that mean in terms of Islam's compatibility with all of these things? Well, it means that you can probably lawyer Islam sufficiently to make it compatible with religious free freedom, women's rights, democracy, etc., etc., right? So, there is flexibility within Islam because it's a legal religion. Now, this seems contra uh, contraindicated, but when you have a legal religion, when you have legal interpretation, and that's basically what most of the development of Islam is, it's, it's legal, right? So Sharia law, which is the application of Quranic principles to aspects of everyday life, that is an interpretive project. And you, you kind of have to have an interpretive project when you have a legally based religion. That means that there is a certain amount of flexibility depending on the lawyering. So then the next question is, what about authority? Who has authority to determine what legal interpretations are, are authoritative and which legal interpretations are not? Who has, just in the same way, who has authority to determine what is theologically correct or doctrinally correct or doctrinally false within Christianity? Here we come to the other really important difference between Christianity and Islam, and that difference revolves around institutions. So from an institutional perspective, the context of Christianity and the context of Islam is quite different. Christianity inherits its institutions from the Roman Empire. We get our doctrine of God, I think, initially from the Jews. There's a lot of the Old Testament and sort of that relational aspect that's in Judaism. I would even argue that if you look at the Hebrew, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, there's a, a doctrine of God that is a little bit more internally relational, that God's own nature is relational, is, is more present in the Old Testament than has often been realized, particularly in modern times by modern interpreters. So we get our doctrine of God from the Jews. We get our language for that from the Greeks. 
and it is the sort of high discourse of Greek philosophy that's been developed for centuries before Christianity arrives that allows Christians to very precisely articulate in theological terms a lot of this doctrinal development. Okay? And we get our institutions as Christians from the Romans. Christianity grows up in the context of the Roman Empire. It grows up as a persecuted religion within the Roman Empire, but, but a religion whose relationship to that empire is ambiguous. And so as the Christians are developing, as they are increasingly excluded from the traditional institutions of Roman society, the family, the cults of the state, the civic institutions that require either sacrifice to the emperor or acknowledgement of the gods, Christians are forced to build their own parallel institutions, and they look to Rome as a model. So Christians build a parallel city within a city, in each of their cities. They develop the office of bishop or episcopos, the overseer, with presbyters and deacons, or priests and deacons, under his authority. And they start developing the civic offices and civic functions, including even the, di- the term diocese comes from Roman imperial administration. So they're developing sort of a, a shadow city and almost a shadow empire in the sense that there is a conciliar model that emerges where the, the heads of the various different cities will come together and where there is a theological issue, the, the different bishops will adjudicate them collectively, right? So there's a little bit of the old Roman Republic in that. And there's a little bit of, depending on how far you want to go with that, for, for Roman Catholics, the development's even more explicit as the Pope eventually develops as, if not a shadow emperor, then in some sense, playing the same role for the Western Church that the Western Roman Emperor did before the Empire's fall. Now, what this means is that as the Roman Empire collapses, its institutional legacy is at least in part inherited by the Christian Church. So you've got very well-structured, very durable institutions that are both somewhat hierarchical, but also somewhat conciliar and consultative. And it is through those institutions that theology is, is mediated. So much for Christianity. What about Islam? Islam's context is completely different. It spent very little time as a persecuted minority. It very quickly conquered large swaths of both the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire. But its roots are firmly within the context of the Arabian Peninsula at the time, in which ties of blood, kinship, and patronage run along tribal lines. So the dominant institution in Islam's early years is the tribe. And so that is the early institutional legacy of Islam. When they pick up the legacy of the empires, it is not the Roman Empire, but the Persian Empire, which is sort of more feudalist, more uh, a little bit more class-based. So a lot of the restrictions on religious minorities and so forth come from the Persians, who had established some class-based restrictions and applied those to religious minorities. So as a result of that, there is always more of a tribal or feudalistic or sort of network approach in Islam. It's not necessarily a formal institutional structure in quite the same way. You add that to the fact that in Islam, there is from the beginning a real sense that the first four successors of Muhammad, the rightly guided caliphs, are the sort of golden age. And even even in Muhammad's life, there's a a hadith or saying attributed to him that says, uh, 40 years after me, there will be caliphate, which is the the, uh, caliph is God's deputy. And after that, mulk or kingship. Now, obviously, the caliphate lasts longer than that as an institution. But because of that, you you have this tribal, less formal, more flexible institutional network, so there's not as clear lines of authority. What this also means in practical terms is that 
when Christianity becomes a licit legal religion, and then eventually the official religion of the Roman Empire, the church already has a well-established set of institutions that parallel the state. And so it's natural for Christians to think in terms of separate spheres of influence. Of course, there's the render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's theological basis of that in, in, in the writings of Jesus, uh, the, the teachings of Jesus is reflected in the Gospels. But there's also an institutional apparatus to make that happen. That doesn't emerge in Islam. There are separations between the public and the private sphere. So in early classical Islam, the, the public sphere is the realm of the caliphate, and the private sphere is really the realm of the ulama, or which translates roughly as knowers. And these are sort of legal interpreters who interpret sharia or family law for private disputes that don't come to the level of, of needing government intervention. But that's not a separation between mosque and state, for lack of a better term. It's a separation between public law and private law. Both are religious. It's just that there are only certain things that the, the caliph, the political authority, is supposed to care about in terms of religion. Okay, so that institutional separa separation is not found in Islam, and really never has been. There have been people who've argued for it, but it's very rare that you ever see that sort of strict institutional separation. What does that mean in practical terms? Number one, it means that there's not a fixed set of religious authorities who can say this is a, a good legal interpretation and this is not a good legal interpretation. So there's a lot more flexibility in terms of that interpretation. Number two, in the absence of, or the, uh, you know, in, in a vacuum where there is not that authoritative religious body that can interpret, the role of interpretation often falls to the government, often falls to the political power, right? So in early Islam, that's the caliphate, and where there are political dimensions to it that the caliphate tries to interpret, there is pushback if the caliph tries to go too far. One of the caliphs, al-Mamun, tries to impose an, what would sort of look like an inquisition, and the ulama at the time pushed back um, to, to a degree on that. So it, it's not like the authority of the caliph or the authority of the state is totally unbounded, but there's no institutionalized authority that can push back against that. So what you find is that there is a lot of flexibility in Islam, but it's also very easy for the state, for the, the political authority, to capture a dominant position. So those are challenges in some ways. Number one, because... When you have an institutionalized structure that, is in, that has interpretive authority, and you have an institutionalized history of separating those spheres of authority between religion and, and the state, between the church and the state, which I think is, is in some ways endemic to Christianity, it's not always there, but even when it is, is present in a weaker form, there's still some separation of spheres at least. I think that's actually to the benefit of the religion, because it prevents the state from just totally capturing religion. And state capture for relig of, of religion, I think, tends to be very bad for religion itself. It tends to be good for the state, because the state can then use religion to legitimize its own ends. It's not as great for religion, because you end up then just becoming sort of another service that the government provides. And that is, I, I, think, I think, not ideal for a number of reasons. So there's more institutional resistance to this within Christianity because there is an institutionalized separation. The other thing is, because there's not this authoritative interpreter, this, this authoritative, you know, sort of the, the Muslim equivalent of a U.S. Supreme Court, if we're going to talk about it from a legal perspective, you can have multiple different interpretations that are contra mutually contradictory, 
And there's no adjudication to say, this is true Islam, this is not true Islam. Obviously, there are certain things that are out of bounds. You can't directly contradict the Quran. There are established schools of jurisprudence that people tend to follow. But there's no actual requirement that you follow any of the schools of jurisprudence. They're just the most dominant schools out there. So there are some challenges that go along with the opportunity. Islam is flexible enough to accommodate a lot of these realities, but it's very difficult to institutionalize those realities as the main or sort of the dominant form. So what are some practical ways in which we can potentially find partners in Islam that would be interested in or willing to work toward some of these issues? Well, the first thing that I would say is that in most Muslim societies, there are Muslims who are concerned about the issue of the state either capturing and, and sort of becoming the agent of Islam or a, a certain brand of Islam capturing the state. So there are Muslims who are opposed to certain types of political Islam. That doesn't mean that they're going to be in favor of secularism because, again, the strict separation of spheres of authority doesn't have an institutional history within Islam and has been advocated for by very, very few scholars, and those arguments have not been well received. Okay, so it's not necessarily secularism. However, there are Muslims who want to impose some limits on the ability of the state to mandate what is and is not good Islam. A good example of this is in Indonesia, when there was an attempt in 1945 when they drafted their constitution to put Sharia law into the constitution as a requirement for all Muslims. Not for all citizens of Indonesia, just for Muslims. The specific language was that there would be an obligation to practice Sharia law uh, for its adherence. Its adherence is, is something that could be broadly interpreted to mean Islam. You could, again, lawyer that to say, well, Sharia law should be applied to everyone. There are two groups that are really concerned about this. Number one, religious minorities, because making Sharia law an official part of the state code was something that was seen as, as, as very dangerous to them in the long term. And number two, also, Muslims that had more traditional and local practices, Muslims that would be associated with a, a broad movement called Sufism, which is add, add some, some personal and mystical elements to the experience of the divine. And if there's sufficient interest, I may go back and do a separate podcast just on Sufism because there's a lot of misunderstandings about it, uh, but it is an important dimension of, of political Islam. So again, if there's interest, we'll, we'll do that. But these groups are also concerned about it. And so basically, they successfully worked with some secular nationalist groups to prevent that Sharia clause from being added to the Indonesian constitution. Why? Because they wanted to protect their local form of Islam from another form of Sharia law that they were worried that would be imposed that, in their view, looks more foreign, looks like it's more from sort of the Middle East, from the Gulf, to be specific, rather than allowing for the flexibility of local practice. There are a lot of Muslim groups around the world that would feel the same, that would be concerned about the state imposing a form of Sharia law that would prevent their local practices, their particular practices of Islam that they've inherited traditionally, that have, have maybe developed in a local context over centuries. And if they want to preserve those, I think there is an argument to be made to those groups that the best way to do that is religious freedom. And that, in fact, by protecting the rights to practice, to worship, and even to proselytize, of religious minorities, that they are in fact protecting their own religious freedom. Something similar happened in the United States. The Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut was writing to Thomas Jefferson, asking for government's protection against the Congregationalist establishment in Connecticut because 
they were concerned about having a form of Christianity that was not their own imposed on them. And so an argument I think could be made that we need to look for the Muslim equivalent of the Danbury Baptists, and that that might be a way to start to work on the idea of religious freedom. Now, it is my belief that if you start to build a consensus among various different Muslim groups in favor of religious freedom, that this opens the door for things like women's rights, liberalism, democracy, rule of law, etc. Because once you have created the idea that pluralism is beneficial, and you have limited the degree to which the state can gain control over Islam in that society, then you open the door for some pluralistic interpretations. There is then an authority vacuum, and, and that's sort of natural, right? If the state's not playing that role, somebody has to play the, the role of authoritative interpretation. That's something that just naturally emerges within Islam. And so you will start to see, I think, parallel institutions develop along those lines. So I think that religious freedom actually is the key, and from that, you can get to a lot of the other freedoms that we're talking about. You can get to things like women's rights. So that, I, I believe, is the best approach for trying to build this compatibility. So is Islam compatible with religious freedom, women's rights, the rule of law, democracy, etc.? The answer is a complicated maybe. There are definite possibilities. There are uh, serious challenges. And I think that if the goal is to sort of improve relations between Islam and, and other civilizations and to build a future in the Muslim world that is open to these various different freedoms, which is, I think, something that's good for everyone, then the way to go about that is to have an honest understanding of and appraisal of the differences and the challenges, and then look for common ground with groups that understand the need for these freedoms. And I think religious freedom is the place to start. And looking for those groups who might see their own practice of Islam being threatened by sort of the Islamist movements that want to impose a very strict and rigorous form of, of Sharia law on Muslim societies. Finding groups that have, have common ground and that feel threatened as well by Islamists is probably the best place to start for that. We don't need somebody who's going to say that Islam is the same as Christianity under the skin. In fact, that's probably not the best partner for us to have because they're not going to be taken seriously by their fellow Muslims. I think that's just the reality. But what we can find is people who recognize that there are honest differences between the religions, but also recognize that protecting other religions, Christianity in, in particular, but not just Christianity, is the best way to protect their own practice. The corollary of that, and this is very important, is that as evangelical Christians in the United States, it is very important that we defend the rights of Muslims in the United States to practice their religion here. Because if we can show that, if we can show that we don't accept the tenets of their religion, we have honest and profound disagreements about the doctrine of God, we recognize they're trying to convert us and we're trying to convert them too, but we also recognize that there is a constitutionally granted right to be wrong, and that freedom of conscience is important to Christianity itself. And if we defend the religious freedom of Muslims on those grounds, then we establish credibility as we start reaching out to partners in the Muslim world and saying, we would like you to help us now defend the freedom of our co-religionists in your countries. There is an element of reciprocity to this. And it doesn't mean that we have to pretend that the religions are the same or wave away the profound and I think highly important differences that we have with Islam on the nature of God. But it does mean that we need to protect the rights of Muslims in our countries and not 
try to deny Islam and, and deny Muslims religious freedom within the United States in particular. If we want to find Muslim partners who are going to help us and stand beside us as we defend our co-religionists and other religious minorities in their countries. And the fact is that if we want to do this, if we want to protect vulnerable Christians, increase religious freedom, establish you know broader women's rights and other, other freedoms, we're going to need partners within the Muslim world. And that means that evangelicals in particular are going to need a lot more credibility and to show a, a lot of forethought and discernment on this particular issue. Okay, so that's a wrap for this podcast. Once again, I apologize for the delay, but I hope you will find that this one is worth the wait. If you have questions, comments, anything like that, please post them on one of our social media platforms. Facebook is probably the best way to get a hold of us and, and pose your questions. Again, if you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, please also post those on our Facebook page. Thank you again for listening. Hope everybody is doing well. Be well. Stay safe. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte, signing off.